When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to CLNS Media powered by betonline.ag. Go to clnsmedia.com slash roll. Use our promo code CLNS50 for 50% off your first deposit. This is July 30th, and this is the Bruins Beat on CLNS Media. And welcome back to the Bruins Beat on CLNS Media. My name is Evan Marinovsky, and I hope you guys loved part one of the Jack Edwards conversation. This week, it's part two. I think part one was very media-centric very how Jack got to be the voice of the Bruins. Um, and it was very interesting, but part two is more focused on the Bruins, focused on, you know, the, his favorite teams he's covered, his least favorite, some the spat he had with a former coach, um, things like that that I think you don't hear anywhere else. It's not really reported. Uh, we, we don't talk current Bruins much. Uh, we don't get into, you know, what should the second line do? What should Don Sweeney do? With uh, David Pasternak, it's more of, you know, uh, reminiscing on old times with the Bruins and, you know, inside stories that, you, again, you don't really get anywhere else. Um, so I hope you guys enjoy part two. Before we get into that, I want to tell you about my good friends over at betonline.ag. They're more than just some online betting platform. There's a lot of them out there, but none are quite like betonline.ag. Their approach is focused on the player, and they built their incredible reputation on offering you, the clients, nothing but the best. From cutting-edge technology to enticing promotions, the latest sports betting odds, they have it all. They're famous for their sports book, where there are live lines on all major sporting events across all the major sports. Their live betting feature allows you to bet on your favorites quick and easy and in real time. They have everything. If you'd like to bet on any of your favorite games, the Red Sox are very hot right now as they're just running over, they just ran over the Yankees this weekend. If you'd like to bet on the MLB or any of your favorite sports, use my personal promo code CLNS50 at clnsmedia.com backslash NHL Bruins to get 50% cash back on your first deposit. Again, that's promo code CLNS50 at clnsmedia.com backslash NHL Bruins. Again, that's betonline.ag. And without further ado, here's part two of my conversation. With Jack Edwards. When it comes to the Bruins play-by-play job, what is your preparation for each game? <laughs> well, it starts August 1st. <laughs> and uh, I compile a, uh, uh, a rather sizable database on every single player in the National Hockey League. And... Uh, I store that in a system that uh, 
is run on a computer that my now 14-year-old son built when he was 13. And uh, uh, for every player in the National Hockey League, I'm able to uh, analyze his trends over his career, uh, his trends during the season, uh, his uh, injuries, his suspensions and fines, his fight log, all kinds of nuggets. And uh, another great Bob Wilson quote, um, the problem with uh, doing research for the National Hockey League is uh, you never know what 97% you're not going to use. <laughs> that, must, that must be tough. And, and, and really, in the information age, now it's 99.99%. I mean, I use probably one of every thousand bits of information that are available, but if I'm the right bits, you know, if you're throwing little gold nuggets away, it's because you're keeping fist-sized ones, right? So, uh, so for every game, uh, number one requirement is watching a lot of video. Uh, but before I watch the video, I have to study the players individually and how they play together, the combinations in which they play, power play combinations positionally, strategically, tactically, um, defensive structure, uh, goaltender tendencies. Um, so I, I prepare uh, a, a file on every single player who is eligible to play in the next game for the Bruins, and then I watch video. And then the morning of games, I download, I don't know, uh, 13 different uh, or 14 different uh, key statistics that might uh, exhibit a trend or a tendency or a contrast. For instance, uh, just like if the Bruins have the best penalty kill in the NHL, and their opponent has the worst power play in the NHL that jumps right out at me. You know, that's, I, as soon as I assembled this, this data, it's like, notice this, right? You know, yeah. I, I have to create mechanisms that are like, uh, you know, the cartoon where the, the guy's walking along the sidewalk and the anvil falls on his head from seven stories high. Right. You know, like, yeah. it's not subtle. So I, I don't miss those things. Uh, and that has come mostly from trial and error. And the errors being that I look back after a game and I say, how could I have missed that? And, and those are the things that haunt you. But in the computer world, I'm able to incorporate those mistakes as future non-mistakes instantaneously by just writing a line in the software. So that's... That's cool. That's impressive to me. You know, your 13 year old son, Elijah, who helped set this call up <laughs> <laughs> because I'm a technological idiot. <laughs> well, no, I wouldn't go that far, but oh, he's I am. I am <laughs> very smart. And, um, Elijah saves my butt. <laughs> yeah. He did. He saved my you, butt too. you don't know how many times I've called him from the press box in my suit and tie down there on my knees saying, 
this light's not going on, buddy. What do I do? <laughs> really? That must be a total panic moment for a 13-year-old kid to be like, well, a, a million people are about to – if this doesn't work, a million people are about to be impacted by this uh, malfunction. Now, I want to talk to you about this, about about building that personal computer that you yeah. use for every single game. What sort of got you to do that, and how did he – you know, how did he end up being able to do that with you? I used to run it off of three Surface Pros, uh, which are really neat tools um, because I wanted touchscreen technology. So I wanted to be able to touch the screen on a player's identifier chip and have it blow up full screen to that player's uh, all, all that player's stats. It, it basically blows up to a, um, uh, a, a portal for that player uh, with his career stats. Um, and for, for the team versus team thing, which is in the third one, I have one team on either side and uh, the team versus team thing in the middle, I, I can call up any tendency between those two teams, compare, contrast, uh, order the teams, et cetera. Uh, I can do it in three touches or less or fewer. Yeah. Three or fewer touches. It works. Yeah. My, <laughs> my high school English teacher, long may he rest in peace is still in my head. <laughs> um, <With me. laughs> but, um, uh, I used to run it off, off of surface pro, but the whole thing was getting so heavy that it was collapsing under its own weight and the computers were freezing. And I described this problem to then 13 year old Elijah. <laughs> and in about a second and a half, he says, Oh, what you, what you need is a graphics card. And I'm like, you, you know, you could have said, Oh, what you need is an electric banana. And I would have said, Oh yeah, right. Cause I would have recognized that as easily. Whoop. As easily as I would have recognized the electric uh, or uh, the graphics card. <laughs> electric. Uh, there, <laughs> I just fixed a computer with a Kleenex box, right? Good so, job. Respect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, if there's no duct tape, there's no democracy, right? Just remember those words. Anyway. True. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so Elijah goes, on, goes online on Amazon and <laughs> in about two hours. He presents me with this budget for a, a desktop computer with three individual touchscreen monitors. And he says, okay, here's what's going to cost. And I can build this for you. And I'm going like, I'm going to trust my career to a 13-year-old boy. <laughs> <laughs> and my money as well. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. The money is just numbers spinning in some bank account. And, you know, I've known really rich people. We all die in the end. So you might as well spend it, right? You know, that's true. Follow your heart. You know, I, my first job in radio, I was making 146 bucks a week and, and going shopping for groceries with a calculator and cash. You get the point? And I was yes. delighted. I was so happy. I was so happy. And, you know, if, if you're happy in your work, money doesn't matter. It really doesn't. And, you know, it sounds easy for a guy who's in his 60s, who's had a lot of fortuitous moments to say that. But really, it doesn't matter. Money and happiness 
are in parallel universes. The two do not intersect. One cannot provide for the other. Okay. So that's that rant. Um, anyway, Elijah builds this computer with a graphics card and everything works. And it's like, <laughs> it's super powered and it. It's like bing, bing, bing. And, uh, it's, it's a much simpler process. Uh, and it takes wow. me about seven minutes to build it and about four minutes to break it down. And so after a disappointing loss on a getaway day when we have to get out to Hanscom or some airport in a visiting city, I can not miss the bus. <laughs> I <laughs> well, pack incredible. it all into a Pelican case and we're off and running. That's incredible to me that that works. And the fact that, I mean, that's a resume booster and a half for him in the future to be like, look, my dad was the play-by-play for the Bruins and, and I brought him into the new age of technology. <laughs> I mean, that is really phenomenal. Especially for yeah, the- but, but really, the kid's, the kid's real talent is cooking. <laughs> really? Seriously. He's a good cook. You should taste this guy's food. I mean, he stands at the spice rack and he goes, a little of this and a little of that. And Bingo. That's amazing. Yeah. Cooking and software. Two yeah. things that will never die out and you will always have a job from, and you should be so proud of that. Don't spill the tomato sauce into the central processing unit. That's that's the good stuff, right? There's the good stuff. Um, <laughs> so now let's get into some fun stuff yeah. uh, with sort of Bruins-related things. Um, what was the best team to cover day in and day out during your time with this job? Oh, uh, 2014 was a lot of fun. Because they were coming off the game six loss uh, to Chicago. uh, And they came back just with something to prove. And that regular season, uh, uh, the, the seats on the, on the Bruins charter are assigned. So I've got the window seat. That's, that's right in the back of the media section. And uh, the, the radio play by play guy, sits on the aisle and of course now it's Judd Surratt but back in 2014 it was Dave Gosher and I I would come back to the plane sit down in my seat and I'd turn to him and I'd say these are the good old days I mean my daughter sent me a birthday present when I was on the road Uh, we were in LA and uh, the nice thing about playing the uh, the Ducks and the Kings on a two or three night sequence is the team frequently will stay in a really nice hotel that's accessible to both teams. So you can plunk down for a while. So we were out having a post-game beer uh, at this bar that was about 200 yards away. I remember this vividly because John Martin was there, the uh, – dear departed photographer who was a sensational guy. Uh, talk about remembering somebody how he lived, right? John mm-hmm. Martin <laughs> lived a very full life. Um, and we were out having a beer, and I brought the birthday present that Nina had sent me on the road out to this bar, and I open it, <laughs> it's, it's a taped uh, coffee can that was meant to be a pen holder like something that you would do in a kindergarten project. But Nina was like in, I think she was in high school by then. Um, <laughs> and it had hockey tape with skulls and crossbones all around it. 
and it had whoop ass on, on the can because, uh, about two weeks before the Bruins were on one of those sensational runs and <laughs> I said it was a late night game. I think it was in Vancouver or something or, you know, somewhere out west. And it was late night and I, the Bruins were up by four or something. And I said, the Bruins are just opening another can of whoop ass, you know, <laughs> and that team buried opponents. I mean, that was when we seriously started tracking second plus third period goal difference. The Bruins second and third period combined goal difference was number one in the league. The difference between number one and number two at one point in the season was greater than the difference between number two and number 17. Really? Yeah. So you could take those 16 teams and fit them into the gap between the best team in the league and the next best team in the league. And, and those also were, I think, 14 of the 15 remaining teams that would make the playoffs. So, that was how dominant that team was. They were, they, they had swagger, they had depth, they had talent, and they had the misfortune to run into Carey Price at the summit of his skills. And that was that. But that team was so much fun because they, they knew that that was one of the last times that that band was going to be together no matter what, even if they, they won the cup. And as it turned out, you know, they, they kind of blew the team up after 14. Well, they won the president's trophy that year, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Incredible team. And, and and they were absolutely the best team in the NHL. They just got beaten by a red hot goalie. I mean, not at the same scale, but, um, my, my youthful parallel to that was, uh, 1971 where Bobby Orr was like, plus 128 or some or plus 124 in a 78 game season. I mean, you know, that, that was just an absurd team. And, and Ken Dryden took them out and Kerry Price took them out in 2014. So that's the way it goes. But that, that team was, was so much fun to cover. That must've been Um, now on the other end of that, What's the worst? What's the worst team you've ever had to cover? Because when you've been here, there haven't been many losing seasons, but there have been a few. What's the worst? Uh, the Dave Lewis year. I was, was about that. to say, I bet it would be 06, 07. That was the and, first year I started watching the Bruins. And, and, and Louis, you know, Louis a sensational guy, but he was, uh, do you know who Leo Mazzoni was or is? I, I'm not, no, sure I do not. He's even still alive. Uh, look up the Baltimore Orioles glory years. And, uh, I, you know, I, I think this is, I don't know. They, he might've been around for the four twenty game winners, but I don't think so. But long time pitching coach of the Baltimore Orioles several times was offered managerial positions and turned them down and, frequently said, you know, I, I'm good at what I do. I know what my limits are and I'm a good pitching coach. Um, Dave Lewis was a sensational assistant coach. Wasn't cut out to be a head coach. And, and that team, well, I think Patrice Bergeron was minus 27 that season. 
Oh my god. Well, that team, yeah, that team was bad. I, I mean, look at Bergeron's career plus minus, which, by the way, for all the, the nerd pillorying of plus minus is a long-term measurement of a player's efficiency at even strength situations and shorthanded situations. It's a long-term measurement. And if you look at seasons, that one jumps out on Bergeron's career stats. It's like, that must be a typo. No. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was so not what, a typo. So what made, as bad as that team was, because I, I, that team had a lasting impact on me, what was it that made it so bad? How long you got? I mean, <laughs> let's. We can go. Do, do you remember? Do you remember the the video? I th- I think it was Restucia, where where Claude bangs his stick on the ice and he says, "Protect the house." Claude built that team from the goal out, and it started with protecting the most dangerous. 10 by 15 foot area in hockey, protect the house. And they didn't protect the house under Louie. They were always trying to do too much and individuals took it upon themselves to, to take that to an extreme. As a result, it broke down. They gave up probably more odd man rushes than any team in the league that season. And it was an unmitigated disaster. It it's about organization and system play in the defensive zone. That's where everything begins. If you don't have that, you have zero percent chance of success in the National Hockey League because almost all offense starts with defense. Yeah. No. It's it. it were there ever any times that year? Where you were, you know, it was a game day and you're just like, oh, I really don't want to do this. Have you ever had no. any times during your no. whole career where you Never. Did, you were like, Never. Oh, I really want to Never. And and you know, Evan, I know that that when I get that feeling, I hope I never get it. But if I ever get it, that's time to to pull the ripcord, put somebody in the booth who can get up for every game. Because if I can't get up for every game, why should any channel surfer stop? If I'm talking about some guy whose nephew has a friend in Saskatchewan who's going to be a great junior player two years from now, and you're just flipping through the dial, what importance is the puck on the ice at this current moment? Play-by-play is play-by-play. You know, it. my first full-time job in Boston was at Channel 5 uh, from 85 to 88. By the way, Mike Lynch was there. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lynchy. I, I learned a lot from him. But, but Don Gillis was still there in kind of an emeritus role. And uh, Don Gillis was the first uh, broadcaster, sports broadcaster in Boston to have a regular nightly sportscast on the news. And at that time, they shot film and converted it onto the air for television. So two completely incompatible media trying to meet. And film is 
enormously expensive. And uh, the news director once said to Don Gillis, can't you just have the, the photographer roll on the highlights? That's, that's not, that's out of touch. Doesn't make any sense. Right. Yeah. And, <laughs> and like, can't you buy this stock before it's going to go up by 12% today? Right. <laughs> and it's just like, can't you invest you in serious? Apple in, in 1992? I mean, come on. Well, yeah. Right. So, so, um, yeah. So, so that's, that's sort of the point with the play by play philosophy that you never know what's going to happen in the next moment. And if you're telling some story that's completely irrelevant to the moment, why should your audience stop and watch this game? The, that's true. The puck, the puck and everything that's happening around it is the most important thing. Those are the most important things in your world. And if they're not, and if you're not excited about it, or at least urgently describing it as vividly as you can, why should anyone spend time with you? That's true. You're right about that. Um, has a coach or player ever yelled at you, uh, chewed you out over something, maybe something you said on air? I mean, it happens with the Red Sox all the time. Did that ever happen to you in your uh, time here as, a, as the Bruins play-by-play announcer? Have you ever met Mike Sullivan? I've never met him, but hey. I know who obviously who he is. He's an unbelievable guy. He's very direct. <laughs> and I don't know anyone, anyone who wears losing on his sleeve more profoundly than Sully, which is probably what made him probably a Hall of Fame hockey coach, to be able to wrestle that incredible assemblage of talent in Pittsburgh into a back-to-back Stanley Cup champion. That, that He's a remarkable, remarkable coach and man. <laughs> he had the misfortune to be coaching when Mike O'Connell lost his mind and traded Joe Thornton to San Jose. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yes. And the freaking bottom fell out of that team. And, you know, it it was like, you know, Sully jumps out of the plane, pulls the ripcord and a bunch of towels fly out instead of the parachute. Right. And we're walking (laughs) that team, especially struggled in third period goal difference. And I mentioned it frequently. Because that was the story. The, the Bruins would get worn down in the course of games because they simply were not deep enough to compete, even at the middle level of the National Hockey League. And one night we're walking to the bus, and he turns to me and he says, he says, third period goal differential? Really? Again? And he just didn't get mad. That's get- it. That's it, though. That's the only time. But... I think he knew that I wasn't going to stop, but he was just just letting off a little bit of steam. But, I, I mean, I've never felt better for an individual to win the Stanley Cup than for Mike Sullivan to win it twice. Yeah, that was yeah. incredible. Yeah, it, 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 and for a guy from Marshfield to scale the summit, and do what they said couldn't be done 
and assign a nice, worthy extension that he's beyond set for life financially. That's great. Yeah, that really is. Um, the piece Joe McDonald did about you in The Athletic back in January I thought was really, really, really good. Um, but there was a part in it. He wrote this. This wasn't what you said, but obviously it came from something you said that really stuck out to me. Um, he wrote, there have been times Edwards thought it was over. Because he's always been a self-described square peg in a round hole, he's been fired three times during his career. And it had gotten to the point where every time he receives a text, phone call, or email from the Nesson Corporate Powers, the thought of losing his job goes through his head. And I have to ask, A, why? And B, was there a specific time you remember where you got a call from a Nesson exec and you said, oh my God, this is the call that's going to end my time as the Bruins play-by-play person? Then it obviously wasn't, but was there a time when that might have crept in your uh, mind? I've had... An inability to hold back my strongly held opinions throughout my career. And, uh, there's an old saying that goes around hockey a lot. Uh, his greatest strength is also his greatest weakness. Um, and I think that coming home, uh, to New England. Uh, I mean, I never left New England, but ESPN didn't feel like New England. Um, I, I think it landed me in a place where people can disagree diametrically on some issues and forgive each other for their differences. And I have directly thanked both the uh, president and CEO of Nesson, Sean McGrail, and the CFO, Ray Gilbo, many times for uh, understanding my personality and and giving me that latitude. Um, I... I... um, all I, all I fear is the phenomenon, right? I mean, I've said this before that, that every step you take in broadcasting is on a trap door. You're just hoping the pin's still attached. People get fired for no reason. I mean, that's not hyperbole. People get fired for no reason just for the sake of shaking things up internally or externally because somebody's spouse says to the person in charge, you know, so-and-so ought to be doing that job. And the next day, so-and-so is doing that job. It's, it, it happens. Um, I'm fortunate to, to work for very honest people and, uh, but at the same time, you know, Don Orsillo, who's a legend and uh, has my unfailing respect as a person and as a play-by-play broadcaster, you know, he had a pretty successful thing going. So you never know. You never know. Did, did that scare you at all? Because at the time, I remember Orsillo was a fan favorite. He was, he was a pro, a, a, definitely a pro Red Sox guy. Um, 
but they went with another guy who was Dave O'Brien, who's also a tremendous play-by-play person, but he is, he criticizes the team. He's not as, you know, he, as quote-unquote fun as Orsillo might be. Would, did that ever scare you? Because I feel like you and Orsillo in a way have a, have a kinship where you're both, you, you, you grew up big fans of the team, you wear it on your sleeve, and did you ever fear like, oh, if they're going to do that with the Red Sox, maybe they might do that with the Bruins and have a guy come in who just, you know, is a typical play-by-play guy. Um, I, the Orsilla thing didn't, um, uh, didn't scare me anymore. Uh, again, it's just the phenomenon. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I uh, have a friend who was a meteorologist in Providence and uh, an awesome one. And, uh, he and I used to be ski buddies and, uh, forecasting in the mountains is really difficult. Um, because there are so many variables. Uh, and he was spot on every single time we skied, you know, even three days out, he says like, this is what it's going to be. And it would be that way. Um, and he got fired for effect, just effect. A new news director just called him into his office one day. He was preparing his maps for uh, that night's show, uh, for that night's newscast. And uh, really, yeah. Yep. It wow. the the axe falls silently, and you you have no idea it's swinging until you feel it pierce your spine it's, I, it's a very it's a very studied methodology and um the, it's it's done in in an underhanded way and uh it's part of what uh differentiates between the the real people in television executive suites and and uh <clears throat> and the others and i i feel you know i I've, i'm a big fan of steely dan and there's a song called home at last uh off the asia album and uh the lyrics are are pretty dead on you know uh and I feel like I'm I'm home at last. Well, that's 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 a nice way to uh, to put it. So I want to segue to Andy Brickley, who obviously you love. You've said he's the best uh, color guy you've ever worked with. You guys go back to yeah. UNH, right? Like you guys were were well, you were close at UNH, right? How did that sort of Dips passing in the night? I I I left in the uh, spring of of '79, and he walked onto campus about. Uh, two and a half months later. And did you know each other then or no? Oh yeah. Well, we knew each other then um, uh, because I was driving from my job at uh, WGIR radio in Manchester, New Hampshire uh, to UNH hockey games and calling them into my tape recorder. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and so I, I saw his meteoric rise and, uh, 
And uh, so I, you know, I, I would go to the dressing room after games and interview players and put the sound bites on uh, the radio the next morning. And, and I'd have this, this play-by-play reel that uh, had an audience of one. <laughs> hey, it got you, it got you somewhere. And, yeah. and to, to imagine like thinking back, like, oh, I'm interviewing the guy that I'm going to, you know, have my dream job with and Andy Brickley. I mean, that's such a cool thing that you guys are in the same locker room and, and, and you work together, you know, you interviewed him and then now you're working with him. I think that's such a cool dynamic. How long, even with that relationship, how long did it take you and Brick to sort of get to the point where you felt, okay, this chemistry works. This is at its best possible chemistry on air. I'm going to use the Mark Recchi cliche with you. I, I once asked Mark Recchi, how long does it take you to figure out if a line mate is a foxhole guy, right? You know, the guy, the, the kind of guy that you want on your side when the ceiling is caving in and you've got to turn this game around right now or you're going to die, you know, it, speaking in similes, right? What works. Yeah, right. Uh and he said, one shift. Really? One shift. Yeah. And I was stunned. But you know what? That, that's what it was like with Brick. One game. Just like, wow, this is going to be awesome. Because I knew his career organically. I, I didn't ever see him play from Melrose High School. But I, I knew about every other part of it. <laughs> from walking on at UNH to being All-America to being one of the few U.S. college players to play at a really high level in the NHL. He was, he was a power play guy in the NHL, a U.S. college player. You can look it up. I mean, you know, <laughs> there were not many U.S. college players who even got a whiff in the NHL in those days. And, and Brick was playing power plays. And, uh, you know, he was – he skated shifts with Mario Lemieux and Cam Neely and not by charity, by merit. And, and uh, his ability to assimilate the game and teach it in a way that your favorite high school teacher did to make you feel smarter without making you feel dumb first um, just fueled me. And it's just, uh, and that, that doesn't even begin to mention the, the person he is off the ice, which is just loyal and true and brilliant and, and quirky and interesting and as quick a sense of humor as anyone I've ever encountered in my life. Yeah, he is, he's very calm and he, and you guys work very well together. What's funny is, and I, I, I've know, I've read this. He stands with his hands in his pocket for most of the game. Um, this will segue, segue me into my next question. Maybe he's not super excited, but what is the most excited you've ever been on air uh, for a Bruins game? For me? Yes, for you. <laughs> well, there are several times I've gone to eleven. Uh, one is the uh, Lucic Kamasarik fight. I think it was seven zero Bruins. It was. That was uh, a bloodbath. They they have beaten them and they have beaten them up. <laughs> it's like I'm screaming in the grandstands. I mean, I was just 
completely out of control with joy and, and just shoveling dirt on the Canadians as fast as I could grab the shovel and, and heave it in. Um, Nathan Horton's goal to win game seven against Montreal in 2011, first round. Um, you'll notice if you go to the YouTube, there's a big pause between the Bruins and knockout Montreal. And I was seeing stars around the periphery of my vision. My blood pressure must have shot to 200 over 160. And, and I, I actually had the thought, like, I'm going to pass out and Brick's going to be flying solo on the, on the telecast here. But you, you know, you got to understand, I was 13 when the Bruins won the Stanley Cup by flying oar. Okay. That is just right in the dead center of brand identification for life. Uh, you know, that's why they try to sell peanut butter to, to 13 year old boys because they'll be buying the same brand of peanut butter for the rest of their lives. And Montreal year after year after year found a different way to break the Bruins hearts. And, and when that goal went in to win that series, just like, wow, that was, that was going through the roof. And, and, you know, the three goal comeback third period game seven, 2013 against Toronto was preposterous. That was just, you know, that it was Brick and I during the, the last TV break before Lucic, Lucic scored to start the whole thing. Um, we were discussing when we would begun, we, when we would begin the autopsy, like, how are they going to tear this team apart? You think Claude's going to last? You know, it's just nah, 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 mm-hmm. nah. and they won. They won the freaking game. <laughs> well, because I remember when you had like the Phil Phil Kessel score, and you said like Phil's biggest thrill, and I was yeah. like, oh my god, there it is. This game is over. Like, there's yeah. no way you can possibly come back from three goals after Phil Kessel of all people scores yeah. to make. I think it was either I mean, we had it four to one, right? I mean, that yeah. was. And that was an dagger itself. Dagger. It, they yeah. had the video shot of you during the game. Nesson had the video shot of you yeah. jumping up and down in the booth. Oh yeah, historic, which is you know incredible. Still ups for a guy that old, right? You know, I you, I, you play basketball with those three, four inches. Yeah, <laughs> just, better no, than George Mirazon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but most excited. What's the most? Have you ever had an angry moment on air where you're just like? Screw this. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I know of a few, but I want to hear what, you, what yours really, really are. Yeah. I, as, as angry as I've ever been on the air, uh, 2008, um, against New Jersey. Um, and it was uh, still very early in the replay age, age. And, uh, Tim Thomas reacts really weirdly after what sort of looked like a save. And the New Jersey players had their arms in the air for a moment. And the play continued, goes to a stop. And um, they review it. Nobody in the building knows what they're looking at. And the Bruins are fighting for a playoff spot. 
so what ends up happening is there it's such an enormous delay and a delay in complete ignorance we don't even know what they're looking at <clears throat> our technical director found an overhead shot that showed the puck bulging against the net inside the post okay and <laughs> That was conclusive evidence that New Jersey had scored. And even though, even though it was to the Bruins' advantage, it outraged me so much that they had irrefutable video evidence of this goal and they disallowed the goal. They said it wasn't conclusive. What could be more conclusive than the puck against the bulging net on the inside of the post? Because, you know, the, the goals in hockey are designed so the, the apron of the goal arches away from the post. The puck physically cannot touch the net unless it is fully across the goal line. That's why the goals are designed. Well, one of the reasons, one of the reasons why the goals are designed that way. So if it hits the inside of the net, that's a goal. They had irrefutable evidence of that. The game was, must have been a six-and-a-half-minute delay, and they made the wrong call. <laughs> that sounds like the NHL. And I just, <laughs> went, I just went off on it, and I said something about, you know, the worst part is that at that time, they didn't allow the house video to show the replays. So um, the, I, I, I think I said the people paying 150 bucks for a seat in the lower bowl between the blue lines have no idea what is going on. And, and it was just ridiculous. So John Shannon, who was then the vice president of broadcasting in his short term with the national hockey league actually went back door up the ladder in, uh, in the corporate structure. And uh, the next morning I got a call from my higher ups that the NHL objected to my tone and language on the air the previous night. Oh and, 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 and you, you know what angered me most about that? What angered me most is that they've got my cell phone number. They've got my email. They've got the capability of text messaging me right away. But no, <laughs> they decided they would go the corporate route. And that's not direct. Feedback is most effective when it's immediate and direct. And if you're telling me that I'm above you, so I don't need to talk to you, this is how much respect I have for you. That's true. So I actually was surprised by your answer on that because there are two things I know that piss you off most. It's, it's the NHL being inept at officiating I think game five of the cup highlights that most with the trip on Nola Chari. So that's a whole nother thing. And then also cheap shots, because as you mentioned earlier in this, in part one of this podcast, you mentioned that your soccer career pretty much ended off of a cheap shot from, uh, from a, an injury. What angers you more in the broadcast booth, a cheap shot. So Matt cook, uh, you know, Sean Avery play, or is it the NHL just not knowing how to officiate and just stepping all over itself? Uh, a cheap shot by a wide margin because really 
cheap shots do two things. Uh, they jeopardize players' um, playing careers and their livelihoods and indirectly their families. Uh, they, uh, they also, and, and all the ancillary connections to that, the quality of life of the player. And the other thing is they, they affect the trajectory of teams. And that's why fighting still always will need to be part of hockey because there is no suspension or five minute major or match penalty that ever will compensate a team for losing a player whose loss affects the trajectory of the team. And, and there's no place for it. It's, you know, if you get beaten on the ice by a better athlete or a better athletic move or your mistake, don't try to make up for it by breaking the rules intentionally. That's rubbish. That's no way to conduct oneself. And, and that's, it's not manly. And I don't mean that in the male versus female. I just mean it's not the right thing. It's not right. the right thing. You're right. Um, so million dollar question. Yeah. Every person in New England, I think, wants to ask you. I have the great opportunity of asking it to you. You at th- these past two years, the Bruins have knocked out the Maple Leafs in the first round. First year it was in spring, the leaves fall. <laughs> this past year was the Leafs are mulch again. Yeah. Now I have to ask, <laughs> how long does it take you to come up with those? Or are those completely spontaneous? No, well, in the course of a series, you, you start to develop a theme and, and, um, this may seem, seem silly, but, but writing is always the base of my thinking. And, uh, I take a lot of notes. I keep an informal diary, not obsessive about it. Um, but I find that I'm able to distill my thoughts best, uh, when I write them. And, uh, that one came up in the course of, uh, of the series. Just, yeah, I, I had that bullet load. That's so funny. You just had it. You're like, I'm waiting for. Does that ever feel like a jinx? Like, oh, I have it in my head. Now the Bruins are gonna lose. Just so I care. Is it just you know? I, I'm gonna use this. I, you know, I, I've called um, Little League baseball uh, tournaments as high as the Little League World Series in Williamsport. Uh, I could say he's got a no hitter going on every single pitch. It doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It has no effect on what happens on the ice <laughs> well, or field or anywhere. It's the same thing. Someone brought, I think it was Matt Kalman brought this up to me and he goes, if both teams wear playoff beards, one team's going to lose, one team's going to win. What is the right. beards? If both teams have the beards, who cares? Right? It cancels itself out. It's like when, when Steve Spurrier used to say, God was smiling on the Gators today. Well, what? He hates the Bulldogs? <laughs> it's true. It just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. If God should hate anybody, though, it's the Montreal Canadiens. Um, <laughs> I would go with the Carolina Hurricanes first. but Really? Why would you want the Hurricanes? The Whalers? Yeah. You would say the Hurricanes over the uh, Canadians for – 
God hating, if we put it in that context. Who's who's Carolina's greatest rival? The oh. null set. There's no who cares about the Carolina Hurricanes, and there's no hockey tradition there. I mean, it's it's fine, you know, a good young team, a good young team. Okay, their owner does not remember where the team came from. Does not honor the past. Does not honor the integrity of the infrastructure that has been built, uh, which should by any of various means, uh, further enrich a very rich man. I, I, I wouldn't smite the Montreal Canadiens because the quality of that rivalry Oh, agreed, 100%. It's absolutely premier. You're telling no. me the Hurricanes-Bruins Eastern Conference Finals rivalry, that that four-game series wasn't uh, wasn't the best thing you've ever seen? <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. That was it, right? Get out of here. You're in our way. It's Well, that was, so I agree with that. But I do think from the stance of where they are now, they are a young franchise, and they're sort of – they generate a little bit of buzz this year. And is there something to be said for teams starting in a place and sort of gaining some momentum, building some hockey fans in North Carolina? This is the fun part, you know, for, for a team. And, and I hope that the Hurricanes sell out every single game. I hope that they generate rivalries. I hope that, that they're one of the most fun teams to watch in the National Hockey League. I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. No, yeah, I I I I agree with you on that. Um so favorite player to talk to in all the years of covering the Bruins. I feel like I know who this might be. I feel like I know who this might be, but I might be wrong, so I'm not gonna guess. That's a lot of players. That you've ever talked to, that you could that you could when you thought of talking to them, you said this is gonna be a, a good interview, classy guy, good guy, maybe a content machine. I mean, you know what you would put as your favorite person to talk to in all your years with the Bruins. <laughs> Andy Brickley. <laughs> well, okay. Aside from Brick. Aside from Brick. You want silver medalist. Uh, uh, I mean, my thought for you would be Bergeron, but I could be totally wrong on that. Well, I, you know, to, to follow the Bruins is to love Patrice Bergeron. I mean, why, why not? Uh, you know, it's, he's a tremendous human being. He's made me a better person and I'm from a generation forward from him. So, um, you know, it's really hard for me to single guys out. You know, who was a really interesting interview was Gregory Campbell. Um, really? He, always told you the capital T truth, <laughs> you know, like we stunk tonight. <laughs> you that's, know? No, that's what we love as you reporters. Yeah. We right. love the honesty. Yeah. And it was all about the, we, you know, it's, it's never, you know, like I, I'm a really good player and, and I deserve better, but you know, you'd never hear that. From me. Well, yeah. Cause you had that, you did a, um, a monologue after he, um, he blocked that shot. You did like, it was a, I remember listening to that and being like, oh my God, like that was epic um, of what you did. So sort of to finish things off here, um, 
I have two more questions. We'll start with one. Would you have, the, and I feel like I know the answer to this, but I'm asking anyways, would you have the same passion if you did play-by-play for another team, say Florida Panthers, Anaheim Ducks, or, or it could be even a bigger, like a Chicago Blackhawks, would you have the same passion um, that you have uh, for calling Bruins games with them? Could you ever feel the same feelings for another woman other than your mother? No, I could not. Right. That 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 easy. But if it's even if they offered you it's a It's organic. Of- it's 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 in my soul. That's the 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 vestibule through which I entered the hockey world was the Bobby Orr Bruins. I followed the Bruins being a kid in New England when they were terrible, when Eddie Johnston was playing every single game of a disastrous season in which they missed the playoffs, in which two-thirds of a six-team league made the playoffs and the Bruins somehow missed. But but Bobby Orr brought me into hockey and and Espo and and Cash and Haji. You know, that's – you can't, you can't, you can't have a surrogate for that. That the love is always there. I, I, I like to hear that. Um, lastly, what do you want your legacy to be? Um, who had more fun than us? <laughs> <laughs> so that's a good. That's one of your favorite terms. Who has more fun than us? Yeah, I stole it from Brick. Well, you guys work is is such a team. You can steal from each other. It sort of works. I mean, it's you're the same person at this point, right? Yeah. I I just want uh I want to be known as somebody who really loves hockey and really loves the Bruins and uh really loves New England. And um my my soul is at peace when I'm uh in New England and especially in the mountains of New England. I just feel like really um, I'm, I'm centered, <laughs> which is strange for a guy who's so often off center, <laughs> but, but uh, it's, uh, it's as good a fit as I've ever experienced in my life. And I just want to do it as long as I'm able. Well, that's why we love you. And uh, it, it's been a pleasure doing this. Um, do you want to plug anything? You mentioned a book in part one. I want to <laughs> let you. I'm just starting to write episodes and it, it's got, it's years from done. <laughs> years from done. Well, you know what? It's, it's a good precursor. We can get the news out there, Jack Edwards. It's about you, correct? It's about yeah, you. It's about <laughs> my life and opinions. Yeah. That's awesome. That's tremendous. But thank you so much, Jack. We've all, you know, listened to you for so long and to sort of have it, this is going to be two hours or all, close to it. So it'll be two parts. Um, but thank you so much for sitting down. Um, have a tremendous rest of your summer and uh, all the best. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Evan. For CLS Media, I'm Evan Marinovsky. I hope you enjoyed these two parts. Have a great rest of your week. 